Welcome to Dallas. We're a community of faith pursuing the way and person of Jesus. We're so glad that you're listening. Okay. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question. I know I've been doing this in recent weeks and it can seem kind of awkward. Oh, he actually wants us to answer out loud. Uh, but you've been good at it. We've been, I've been hearing some really interesting answers. And this is a simple one. Who is a modern day hero? In your own personal life or just publicly, who's someone that you can think of or that just kind of quickly comes to mind that's a modern-day hero? Yeah, go ahead. Just somebody. Michelle Obama, okay. Kim Pizzoli. We all agree. We all agree. We're naming... uh, for those of you online or maybe those who listen around the country who don't, don't know some of these names, uh, we're naming public figures and we're naming dear church family members here at Dulles. A couple more. What's an example of a hero that in, in the last 20 years, in your lifetime, maybe in the last couple of years? Ooh. You just, got, you just won some points there. <laughs> hey. Find me afterwards here. I want to. I want to hear why. When we're done here in a little bit, that's great. I wish I had said that. His wife. (laughs) Not. No. No. (laughs) Just to be clear, I wish I had said my wife. (laughs) Oh man, that's just what we need. I thought the controversy that was going to come out of today was opening remarks about the Supreme Court. Um. One of, the, one of the most common views today in our world is that God is an angry God. And, and we kind of know this generally, and we, we, we sort of see it in, in the public. I'm telling you, I am in conversations with people every single day, people who are trying to connect the dots on faith, people who are trying to understand, can the Bible really be trusted? And, and I'm, I'm telling you, it is overwhelming, overwhelming, the sense, the paradigm that people have even from organized religion, that God is the angry God who is very good at remembering bad decisions in people's pasts. And when he does sort of randomly show up in, on the planet or in our lives or sort of gets our attention, it's usually in the form of punishment for people who've stepped out of line in some way. My favorite TV show at the moment uh, there's a, a lot to choose. It's not Stranger Things. It's not The Mandalorian. Boy, Kenobi was so good. Uh, really good. But my favorite show at the moment is Yellowstone. <laughs> and I got to be cautious because it's super dark, super dark family show, drama. Um, Kevin Costner is John Dutton. And, oh, but it's so well written. I don't know how many pastors watch Yellowstone, and I don't know how many would admit to watching it, but it, it is such a well-told story, and the, the, the acting and the, the scenery, I've said for you know, a couple years, the scenery is like a leading character. It's just gorgeous. It's such a beautiful, beautiful show. But one of the dark elements of the show is that John Dutton, his view of God is that God is angry, he's distant, from humanity, and if he is actually real, he's most likely God's most likely God's 
priority is sending John Dutton to hell. <laughs> and I think it, you know, maybe I'm overthinking it. This is me having my pastor hat on, I guess, maybe. But I, I think a lot of the dark in John Dutton's life has its core in his view of God. And it's incredibly sad that culture carries this notion about God, but it's a catastrophic tragedy that many, many, many people who attend churches have the same notion of God, that God, you know, gave us the, the story of God in Scripture, and that it really conveys this idea, even in sending Jesus to die on the cross, that it's, it's really about God constructing a way where he can welcome some people into heaven, into this happy, good place, while damning a lot of people for their actions and their... That is the concept of so many people who actually fill churches. So this morning, in, in our abbreviated time here, and if we need to come back to this and fill in some gaps, because uh, I, I had not planned a week ago on my opening remarks about the Supreme Court ruling, we'll come back to it. We've got, we've got the rest of summer, and we could go into fall with this. But I, I want to take our time undoing that thought, that notion, because it's so, so counter to who God is. And we're going to look at the actual story of God in his story. Okay, so first, as a setup, I want to look at a couple of the examples where Jesus is getting into trouble with the religious leaders. And I love this. And all the debate and the tension, the mounting tension with, between Jesus and the religious, arrogant, pious Leaders of his day, they were essentially like the pastors. If you think of, you know, a pastor in Jesus' day, the scribes of the temple and the Pharisees were, were that group of people. They were the religious experts, and they hated Jesus. And in Mark 2.16, this is one of those examples, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, tax collectors were the Jews, they were supposed to be the insiders to the Jewish people, but they essentially betrayed their heritage by be working for Rome to tax the people, and they just, they so overcharged to take their commission. They were despised, and it, it was such a illegal, uh, criminal business of tax collection. Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. The Pharisees said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And my favorite one of these examples is in Luke Luke tells us, this is in the message translation, by this time a lot of men and women of questionable reputation were around Jesus listening intently. The Pharisees and religious scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased, and they growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. And this was the, the, the root of the Pharisees trying to prove that Jesus couldn't possibly be from God. How could this man claim to be God when he spends his time with those people. So now we're going to go way back into the beginning, into Genesis. Soon after, men and women chose selfishly and decided we need to be in control. The world will work better if I'm in control. And it broke creation. And I believe that's why we believe this strongly here. That's why the, the world is broken. And it's, it's why we see the news that we see, and it's why we experience the challenges and hurt in our world today. We did not keep God, the creator of good and beauty, at the center. We wanted to be at the center. And soon after the pages of that story comes Genesis 12, where God sees the faith of Abraham, 
believing that the world should revolve around God, that God is pure and good and right and that he should be the center of Abraham's life. And so God says, out of you, I'm going to create a people and those people who we know will become Israel, the, the Old Testament people of God that are, are, are to reflect him, they are to be a blessing to the whole world. Not God's favorite and God hates the others. The intention of Israel was that they would be the messengers and the voice of hope and the image bearers of God's character to the rest of the planet. They eventually fail in that. And of course, Jesus comes to be the, ultimately the, the example of Israel that was always supposed to be. If you look at Genesis chapter 22, the, the, the promise is, is actually culminating now to Abraham. And through your offspring, Abraham, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This is the intention of early Israel. God's, God begins, he launches a rescue plan for humanity. Soon after, we read that we've taken control and we've broken everything. And God's rescue plan is going to be through people. It's going to be through people who have chosen to trust God's control. And it's going to be through people who have chosen to reflect God's character. And this remains God's plan today. Of course, we know since the life of Jesus that that mandate has been given to the church. The church is the new Israel. So we come to Exodus, the next chapter of God's story, the second chapter, and we see Moses approaching this bush that suddenly is in flames, and he can't explain this is God's way of getting his attention. And Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Have you ever felt like you're in some kind of a spiritual wilderness? And I know you have. I have. You just feel like God, if God is there, he's not close to me. I don't, I, I don't see him at work in my life. I can't explain. In fact, I see trouble. And life is hard. It's no accident. This isn't just filler language here that Moses now, after leaving the house of Pharaoh where he was raised, essentially adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, he, he has become the prince of Egypt and yet he's trying to defend his people. And many, many years ago, he gets into a fight defending the Israelites who become slaves in Egypt, and in this fight, he ends up killing a man, and then he tries to hide the body by burying it in the sand, and there's so much challenge, personal and familial, and running from God, that here Moses is later in life, and it's no accident, it's not filler to tell us that he's on the far side of the wilderness. He's not just in the wilderness, he's on the extreme side of the wilderness, the wilderness representing in the Old Testament dryness and barrenness, the, the, the extreme opposite of the garden, of creation, life, full life as God in, intended it to be. If you feel like you're in a wilderness or you sometimes maybe would say, I think I'm on the extreme side of the wilderness, Moses is your guy. There the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses sees this. It seems bizarre to us, but this is God. God will do anything to get our attention. 
and to pull us and our focus in toward him, toward his voice. Doesn't, it just seems random today. We're driving on Route 50, a burning bush, but in the wilderness, in Moses' context, where there were wildfires often, there's a wildfire that isn't consuming the trees. What, what's happening here? So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush doesn't burn up. When, uh, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him. So this is God. We're told the angel of the Lord. We don't know there's a voice coming out of it, but now it's clear this is God. God is overlapping. His, he's making his space to overlap again, like in the garden, human space. This is his ultimate desire that we would coexist together again. And so here's an instance of this happening. Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. There's this, you know, we, we tend to focus on this. This is, this is holy. You've got to be nervous. We should be afraid. And so we see this nervous trembling. God's the angry God. And we're going we're gonna to see that countered here very quickly. The compassionate, kind, loving God is the one who's approached Moses here. And yet there is the sacred. Take off. Take off. What carries the grime and crud and dirt and filth? Because this is a special place. This is a sweet place and something profound is about to happen. God has come close to you to tell you his heart for humanity. Then God said, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hides his face because he knows this is creator God. This isn't some idol or some, this is, this is the rescuer God. Because Moses knows the story. God approached Abraham, his forefather. He knows what happened. You, because of your faith in me, Abraham, you, you de descending from you will become a great people who will be my image and reflection to this world. Moses knows that, so he understands, oh, if it's the God of Abraham, then this is the God who intends to rescue humans. And sure enough, here we go, verse 7, the Lord says to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out. This is sensory language. God is suddenly using language that the Babylonian gods, the Egyptian gods, that, that never was their language that... Spoke of the senses. I see the condition of my people. I hear them crying out to me. This is very personal. It's very intimate language. It's shocking language to be coming from a deity. And emotion comes next. The next statement is, is heartfelt, emotional language. I've seen and I've heard because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. This is God expressing concern for people. Until this point, world religions saw God. We, we've got to be concerned about him. We've got to work, 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 work our way up to God. He's so mysterious and so far away. This is God saying he's concerned about us. This is an emotional God who sees and hears what we're experiencing, our brokenness. And by the way, 
If you've ever thought or grew up in church believing that the Israelites were God's favorite, God's a God of favoritism, in the Old Testament he doomed and he was violent to these people, you, you have misunderstood or been mistaught the story of God beginning his rescue plan. God's intention has always been to use people who choose to reflect his character and choose to trust his control, to use people to show who he is. So much so that when Jesus would come someday to fulfill Israel's mandate, he would come as a person. One of my favorite lines in the Bible is next. I'm concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. This is appalling language. To you and I, it's part of the Moses story. We've grew up maybe in church hearing this. It's, it, it, you know, Charlton Heston, if you know that name, if you're my age or older, the old Ten Commandments movie about Exodus and the story, this is what God says. This is shocking language that for the first time in a world that was trying to put religious concepts together, humanity knows there must be something beyond us. There must be. And so it took on the form of idols. Never, never had there been a concept of God coming down to us. This is humility. By definition, this is humility. God was always way out there, and we had to appease God. We had to sacrifice and and do the sacraments and work to get to God. This is God saying, I'm coming down to you. When I was 11 years old, my dad uh, came out of a meeting one evening and said, hey, guys, get in the car. I remember this. It was just, I remember going numb when I found out what happened. A plane had crashed right here in D.C. It was January of 1982, and we get home and turn on the TV, and a plane had lifted off from National Airport. Uh, This is before de-icing. This is why de-icing is such a big thing now in cold weather. Uh, The wings were frozen. It was barely off the ground for just a matter of seconds. Hit the 14th Street Bridge and plunged into the river and sank. And as an 11-year-old, I mean, everybody's horrified. This is like, I I can so picture standing there in front of the TV just shocked, like, oh, planes can crash, and, you know, it's so rare, it's the safest way to travel. Anybody who's, you know, you know those things. I don't need to say that. But it was horrific. And a woman surfaced, a passenger surfaced, and I I I re-familiarized myself with the story this week. Her name was Priscilla Tridado. Tirado. Priscilla Tirado surfaces in the middle of the icy river, ISIS floating by. She's in the river for 30 minutes, not just in the icy water, but with jet fuel all around her. And by the time the helicopter finally gets to her and the line is in front of her, her hands are so cold she can't grab the line. And I'm standing there as an 11-year-old thinking, I'm going to watch somebody die for the first time in my life. This is, And a man who is in rush hour traffic to go home gets stopped, can't cross the bridge. He's out of his car like so many people. His name is Lenny Skutnik. And Lenny Skutnik is standing on the bank of the Potomac in, watching in horror with everybody else. And when this woman can't grab the line, the helicopter is right over top of her. And she at one point had it, and I, th- I think I remember her spinning, and then she falls off the line. He takes off his coat, takes off his boots, and jumps in the icy river. Anybody live here then, or does anybody remember this? 
And he swims out to her and saves her. He rescues her. She's alive to this day. And the media blitz that comes out of this story, you know, he was later on Nightline that night somehow. They warmed him up in the hospital, and I read that he actually appeared on Nightline that night. And then he's on every news, and President Reagan, the Coast Guard awards him the highest heroic medal, and President Reagan invites him to the State of the Union address, and he's a hero here, and, and, and he said this. Lenny Skutnik says later, I hate being called a hero. I'd rather be called a decent human being. What I did was a human reaction, like breathing or like walking, and I love that this guy believes that this is how we, we should lower ourselves to elevate others. All humans should do this. This should just be what we do. This isn't anything. I'm not something special that decided I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be greater than anybody else. This is just how we should respond to one another. Greatness is not elevating ourselves. And in this world we live in, that's all we're taught. That's all we see. The money we make, the titles we collect. How we're esteemed, how many follow us. How many like us on social media? It is an epidemic among anyone who's 28 years old or younger that accumulating likes absolutely defines the person, whether they're valuable or not, whether they're liked, whether they have something important to say. Greatness is not elevating yourself above others. Humility. Humility is the call to humanity. Humility is the essence of humanity, what humanity was supposed to be, what humanity is being called by Jesus back to. Humility is the essence of looking like God and sounding like God and behaving like him because God is the one who first came down to us to rescue us. Rescue, by the way, is a word in the Hebrew. When God uses this word, it, it translates well into English. Rescue. It means to be the one to pay the risk, to take the risk, to potentially pay a price for the sake of someone else. And God says, I've come down. Moses, I'm coming down to rescue my people. And so Moses is probably, and by the way, into a good and spacious land. This is Garden of Eden language. This is Eden language. God is beckoning humanity back to what he created in the beginning. No aging, no suffering, no bullying. Humanity the way that he intended. And this rescue plan just goes next level with Jesus. When Jesus comes back from the dead, all bets are off. Now, dead things can be made alive. And the church is supposed to live this out and walk this out. Broken relationships, hurt, the mistake you made, the, the guilt you carry. All of it can be resurrected. Life can come out of, I mean, if, if Jesus can walk out of the tomb after three days, life out of anything is possible now. And that's the, this foreshadowed language of Eden language. Moses, I'm calling this people into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That is intentional language that's a throwback to, to Eden. 
And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. And then <laughs> Moses is probably like, this is going to be a great show. God is going to come down and rescue. God, what are you going to do? Lightning? Heaven's chariots? You know, I don't know what's in Moses' mind. And then Moses must be in shock. What comes next? So now, Moses, go. I'm sending you. And God moves from the sensory language, the emotional language, the humility language. I'm coming down. I see. I've heard. I'm concerned. I'm coming down to rescue to engagement language. Now, I want you, Moses, to get in the game. I want you to participate. I know you're on the far. I know about the, the man you murdered and buried. I know you've been running and hiding. I see. I, I want to use somebody broken just like you to reflect me, to be my voice in messed up situations, to give hope, to lead others into life and encouragement. Moses gets into this little debate with God. Who am I? Me. Which implies, God, have you not seen what I've done? I, 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 I was raised in Pharaoh's house. I, I've killed somebody. I, and God's like, you're exactly who I'm calling. We're going to pick this up. I'm not sure when, but we're going to pick this up soon uh, to finish the story because for time I'm going to wrap here. But where this goes is we're going to jump ahead to the New Testament where John introduces Jesus' arrival by saying, the word who spoke creation, the world and the universe into being, has become flesh and he's made his dwelling among us. It's the same language. He has come down to us. He's not waiting for us to climb up to him or to impress him or to bow and worship and do all the right things. He has come to us. And it's rescue language in the New Testament. We'll take a look at that in the, the weeks ahead. I so want to change the, maybe the paradigm or the way you've always thought or the way you've looked at organized religion or how Christians have maybe modeled the angry God. I just want to counter it. I want to look at the story of God at face value. This is the story of God who chose to come to us in our ugly and our brokenness and our selfishness. Man, I find it so irresistible. The most exciting, I, I mean, this is, it's a cool graphic. You know, we're not thousands of people. Like, I, I believe this, it's going to turn into that. Not, not, not necessarily under the name Dulles Church. That's not the goal. We're not trying to build an empire here. I just believe that if we, if we become a church that looks and sounds and behaves like Jesus, it's, it's just infectious. It's not only different from Washington, D.C., and, and maybe the organized religion view you grew up with, you know innately there's something in here wired that knows I'm made for this. We were all made for this. And the church is the call of God, imperfect people, broken as we've been, who are being made whole and being encouraged with life that we actually become life bearers to those around us, encouragers and hope givers. And I'm calling all of you to join me in this. We don't have it all figured out, but Jesus, we believe Jesus does and we're following him. So God, may we walk with courage. May we be willing to shed preconceived ideas or maybe the, the, the church we saw when we were kids or 
religion dividing people and judging people. God, maybe shed that view and look at the story of your rescue plan as it unfolds. Fill our hearts and minds with trust as we step into this risky area of, wow, maybe the hope for the world is actually the church that looks like Jesus.